Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Craig Fairman. He's a journalist and historian who's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. He has a fascinating book out just this month. It's got an interesting uh, offbeat topic. It's called Author-in-Chief, The Untold Story of Our Presidents and the Books They Wrote. Uh, it's out with Avid Reader Press. Thank you for joining us, Craig. Hey, it's my pleasure. All right. So this is yeah, really uh, you, you run through. We go from the beginnings of the presidency all the way up to all the way up to Barack Obama. And I, I really uh, want to begin before getting into the presidents themselves. We will just jump right into the topics of the book. Uh, two definitions. You say that there are primarily two kinds of presidential books in most cases. There are a few exceptions with, with Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, people who were prolific authors in, in other areas. But when we're talking about surrounding the presidency, we have two kinds of books. One is a campaign book and one is a legacy book. What's a campaign book? Sure. Um, well, the campaign book is a book that's written with the idea of influencing a run for the White House. So one thing that's interesting about this history is that it's as old as the history of the presidency and, and of the country itself. The first campaign book comes from Thomas Jefferson, Notes on the State of Virginia. And he didn't write that necessarily with the White House in mind, but it became a, a real flashpoint when he ran for the presidency in 1796 and 1800. So first campaign book, Thomas Jefferson, first legacy book, which, you know, is probably the category we're more familiar with, the kind of idea of presidential memoirs. John Adams wrote the first one of those. So you can see how far back this history goes and, and how much fun the story is to tell because there are so many great characters and books along the way. And, and one of the things that you do provide is not only the discussion of the presidential books, but the circumstances of publication, the audiences, the readership for them. And when, when, you, when I was reading it and saw, wait, wait, notes on the state of Virginia, I've taught selections from Jefferson's notes before, but I've never really tied them to a political campaign before. But the notes actually played, in some ways, a dangerous role for Thomas Jefferson during his uh, campaign runs, especially in, in 1800, uh, I believe, when, when he won. What was the problem with the notes, which is revered as part of sort of the canon of American writing, American literature these days? Sure. Yeah. One of one of my favorite uh, asides that I found from the kind of the publication side and the publishing side is that when Jefferson is an old man, a bookseller wrote him a letter and said, you know, do you want to do another edition? This is um, this is one of the standing books in all the bookstores in the country. So it's you know, you think of today, if you walk in a bookstore, you're always going to see Malcolm Gladwell in the in the late 18th century, early 19th century. What you would see in bookstores was Thomas Jefferson's notes. It was it was that influential and that important of a book. 
But to answer your question, where it really caused him trouble was when he ran for president, because, and this is a dynamic I think that'll feel familiar to, to any of us watching elections today, uh, his opponents saw the book as proof that he was terrible, and his defenders saw the book as proof that he was great. And so they would really pull by page number. And so the, the passages that really got him in trouble were on religion. And Jefferson had a very logical, analytical mind, and he tried to work through ideas like the separation of religion and state and say, you know, maybe it doesn't matter as much what other people's faith is, and, and that's not really the business of, gov of government to, to legislate or worry about. And that, that idea really got boiled down to a soundbite. And so his enemies would quote it and cite it and say, this is all the proof you need that, that Jefferson is an atheist and electing him will be the downfall of the republic. And then Jefferson's supporters would say, well, what about these other passages that, that show that he is a good person and that he does believe in religion? And I found stories in old newspapers of actual town halls where people would stand up and, and read from this book by page number trying to make the point. And, you know, they both had the same book, but one side saw it one way and another side saw it a completely other way. The, the, the passage that you highlight there is where Jefferson describes where the Potomac and the Shenandoah rivers come together. And it's a very lyrical passage. It's famous uh, for, for Jefferson at the time. Was it recognized as not only you know a survey of what America is like, what this new nation is going to be about, but was it recognized as being something of a literary, a literary masterpiece at that time? Absolutely, and, and I think what's important is that it was recognized in that way in Europe, because when when he was surveying America, he was trying to sort of you know run down what's the received knowledge about this new country, but he was also trying to defend this new country and trying to say that this country is more than you might have heard. Um, the critiques about America as being inferior as not measuring up, those don't those don't hold up to careful analysis. And so it is a really lyrical book, and there there are some really fascinating passages and, and so much new information he dug up. I mean, he would go out to burial sites for Indians and and work through these sites himself, just trying to find examples of of evidence that that could serve his arguments. And the arguments worked. The book was reviewed widely in France and Germany. It was translated and it was discussed, you know, in the salons of Paris. And it, it really was a, a, an important document that was kind of defending America and saying, hey, America is, is here to be a player on the international stage. And, and one of the arguments that he was fighting was a European argument saying that the American, not only is the American continent a place of, of savagery and, and a wilderness, but it is biologically degenerate. The animals there aren't as strong and, and forceful. And the human beings themselves who grow up in this, in this wilderness, they too, they're, they're inferior biologically. They're inferior intellectually. And, and that, that, that's, that, that's going to stay that way for a long time. Jefferson is writing us to come back against that. And, and he won the debate? Uh, yeah, he it, it was a really lasting argument, and that's why he was, you know, rooting around burial sites because he was looking for bones that he could measure, and then those measurements would be, you know, the closest thing that they had in that era to to hard data to refute exactly the idea you're talking about that people who lived on this continent for a long time weren't smaller or weren't weaker. There wasn't something in the climate that was causing them trouble. Instead, it was, you know, if anything, they were bigger, they were stronger, and that that you know those same ideas became really important metaphors. And so, you know, if if America's 
people are as strong and, and as vital, well, its ideas are as strong and as vital. I mean, Jefferson would, would defend American literature and say, yeah, we don't have a great poet yet, but we have some great generals. We have Benjamin Franklin. And so he was constantly arguing at the same time that he was surveying. And, and the book sort of worked in those two registers. And not only did it summarize so much about America in that time period, it really made the case for America's importance um, you know, in terms of ideas, in terms of culture, in terms of economics, all of it. Did politicians at the time take a lesson from the no the more controversial side of the notes that, hey, if you're going to run for office, if you're ambitious, you better watch what you say. Don't take any strong stand on anything. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. One of the pamphlets that really hammered Jefferson when he was running for president, you know, sort of set up this idea of how do we know what Jefferson really thinks? And then the line was, well, thankfully for us, Mr. Jefferson has written, he has printed. And that it was that idea that you see again and again, and I think it happens to be a true idea, that, that a book is, is a really um, special way to see into what somebody thinks and what they believe in and, and the kind of person that they are. And so one way that politicians figured out to, to get around this was something called campaign biographies. So behind the scenes, the politician is very actively involved, chooses the writer, supplies all the information, um, shapes the narrative and shapes the image. But the book is technically written by somebody else. And that's a strategy that you still see today. What surprised me is that the innovator who figured this out was Andrew Jackson. We don't really think of him as a literary strategist, but his book was really set the model for that, you know, a, a few decades after Jefferson. Why? You, you mentioned John Adams' autobiography. No one, no one even knows about Adams' autobiography. I mean, uh, you know, Russell Kirk included John Adams in his, in his book, The Conservative Mind, you know, 70 years ago. Uh, and took a lot from the autobiography in in that in those in his sense of Adams, but otherwise, why isn't Adams's autobiography better known? Well, I think it's really a category error that people scholars will rely on what's in the autobiography because it, it's it's a wonderfully rich document. You know, we're talking 440 pages in Adams's handwriting, so they will use it for details or use it for ideas. But what nobody had done before I started working on it was step back and say, well, let's think about this as an act of writing. And I think that's important because that's a real way to see a human side of presidents that you wouldn't necessarily see. John Adams, the writer, was John Adams, the person. He would talk about writing as a physically painful act. He compared it to getting a sharp blow on the knee. And that's because he just he, he was emotional. He was impulsive. He was somebody who liked action. And so it was hard for him to sit down and slow down and write because he wanted to be out there in the middle of life, living life. But when you see that, you start to understand more about him. And also that emotional side of him is what makes his autobiography so revealing. One thing I tried to do in my book is sort of put his book in the context of other autobiographies in that era. And most of them were pretty buttoned down and, you know, focused on, well, what did I accomplish as a public official? Adams doesn't do that. He talks about his personal life. He says, I want my kids to know that they don't have to worry about any half brothers or sisters after out there because I was faithful to my wife. And I mean, that, that would be a very frank confession today, much less in the early 19th century. But John Adams was somebody who was personal and angry. And you can see that in his writing, but you can also see that in him as a writer. And, and that's why I liked my topic, because I could really get that personal side and those behind the scenes stories that hadn't been told. Yeah, but but then he he has a son, this wastrel son who wanted to be a poet and he never really mattered much to anything beyond that, right? Right, right. He he did he once he gave up the poetic career, he he managed to become president. Um but yeah, the the poetry didn't quite work out for him. But it, it it's so interesting because John Quincy 
he to him his in his letters to his dad in his diary he talks about you know America doesn't have a great poet yet and it, it fits in that tradition with what we were talking about from notes in the state of Virginia that America had this kind of literary trade deficit and and Jefferson had started to make a dent in it with his book and John Quincy Adams long before you know somebody like Nathaniel Hawthorne takes up these exact same themes and concerns John Quincy Adams is like if I could make my own choices. I would write a great poem that that would solve this problem that would would represent the best of America to the rest of the world, um, and that that's a dream that that he that never left him. He he always I think felt a little bit like a frustrated poet even as he became president. You you mentioned Hawthorne. You know Henry James did a little biography of Hawthorne. You know sixty years later, and he said something that I think that applies here. Uh, James said it takes a lot of history to produce a little literature. Uh, that's, that's how James explained it. It took America a while to, to build up the culture that would, that, would, that would create great writers. Now, if we jump ahead to Lincoln, you have a long section on a very important book. We remember Lincoln for his great speeches. Uh, but, you know, I, I actually teach American literature, American history, American philosophy. I was not aware of the backstory here that a book, a particular book played in the election of Lincoln, and that Lincoln played an important role in the production of that book. What's the story? Well, it's, I'm glad we can talk about it because it's my favorite story in the book, and it, it was the biggest surprise to me, too. I mean, you go out and read a great biography of Lincoln, it's not going to tell you that Lincoln wrote a book, but he, he absolutely did, and that book made a difference. Kind of have to step back to set the, set the context. In 1858, Lincoln runs, loses the Senate race against Stephen Douglas, and they had these debates. Well, one of the new innovations in that period was that there were stenographers from the local news newspapers who would try to get, you know, a verbatim account of the debates and publish them in newspapers a couple days later. For most people, the story ended there, you know, oh, we read that. That's interesting. Let's move on to the next story. But Lincoln, and, and this is why I think this story is important. It's not just that this book made a huge difference. It did. It's also that this book tells you something about how Lincoln saw the world. Lincoln thought, you know, these speeches can still matter in two years time when there's going to be another election and they can matter as a book. He really was ahead of his contemporaries in understanding print as a vital um, source of information, in, especially in democracy and especially in an election year. So he worked really hard. It, it's kind of a complicated story that I tell, but he worked really hard to get the best transcripts for his book. They put them together or sorry, he put them together and you can't overstate how painstaking he was in this. He got multiple versions of the newspaper. So he compare and find, you know, well, who got the paragraph exactly right? Then he would go back with a pencil, edit it himself. He ends up pasting these in a scrapbook, finding a printer. And, and that's its whole other story because he was, as you can imagine, a really demanding author. But once he found a printer, that book came out before the convention in 1860. It, it helped him win the nomination. And it definitely helped him once he ran for president. This book in 1860 sold 50,000 copies. And, and yeah, one thing that you point out is, look, these debates took place in Illinois. That's quite different from America in 1810 when you have many fewer states. Uh, you know, the political scene was combined to a much smaller geographical area. Now, something happened in Illinois. People, people in Maine need to hear about this. And the newspapers, well, they might see the newspaper, they might not see the newspaper. The book, it can be, it can be marketed, it can be, people can travel and, and sell it to, you know, booksellers traveling to small towns. And there's not the time factor, right? If you miss the, if you news, miss the newspaper that day, that's it. 
you're not going to get it again. And Lincoln, that, that's, that's part of what Lincoln understood, I think, that, that you're saying about the way information is, is, is distributed, disseminated. Yeah, and I, and I think he understood that because that was his life story too. You know, he grew up in one of those far-flung places where they were lucky if somebody would would come, a traveling bookseller, to share books. But books were where, he, and he he talked about this many times. Books were where he first started seeing that there were bigger ideas than harvesting corn in southern Indiana. And so books changed his world, and I think that enabled him to see that books could change the world more broadly. And that's why he put this book together, and it was such a huge bestseller. And you know, it really presented the, the most important debate of that era, which was slavery and whether or not it should expand. And Lincoln was careful. He was canny. He, he used his words effectively, and then he made sure that as many people could access those words as possible. He's a smart guy. And he almost, and he almost lost it in a hotel. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing that he when he traveled to Ohio, which is where he finally found the printer, he'd spent weeks and, and a lot of money paying, you know, shipping to get all these transcripts, carefully put it together, leaves it behind, gets back to Illinois and just panics. I mean, he sent two letters. He sent a letter to a, a contact in Ohio. He sent a letter to the hotel just beside himself. I, what where is the scrapbook? Because it took a lot of work to put that scrapbook together, but also because he knew that scrapbook would be the foundation for a real book, a book that would reach voters and help his cause. And if if that book had never come out, if that record of the speeches and, and Lincoln went over those speeches, he went over the text pretty well. I mean, he, he was a real editor uh, on this. If the book had never come out, would Lincoln have been elected? That, that's a hard counterfactual to say. But maybe not. We can say maybe not. Yeah. And I, I, what I will, I, I'll say two things. The book sold 50,000 copies, which if you adjust for population is the equivalent of a half a million copies today. I read a lot of old newspaper clippings where they talked about this and, and the book was everywhere. It was being discussed. It was being cited. Uh, Republicans in New York City were bulk buying it to, to pass out, which is something you see politicians do today with books. Um, the people at the time thought it was important. You know, when, it, when a New York City operative wrote Lincoln a letter, he said, your debates with Douglas, they've read, they've studied. And, and that was his way of saying, you know, we're ready to support you. So this book was essential to the people who were living that election. And again, it's also essential to us today because it helps us see how Lincoln's mind works. And I always tried to keep both those concerns in mind with my book. You know, this is about how these books have made a huge impact, but this is also about how these books can show a human side of even a president like Lincoln. Like you'd think there's nothing left new to say about Lincoln, but there is. And it's, it's that he wrote this really important book. Jump ahead to presidents is... Would you call Grant's memoirs a legacy book? Yeah, I would, but it's but it's not so much about the presidency, right? It's it's right. It's it's often seen as a president. It's often called the you know the greatest presidential memoir. And in terms of just prose, yeah, it's a fantastic book. But it doesn't really talk about the presidency. It talks about his time as a general during the Civil War and, and a little bit about him, you know, growing up in Ohio. So it's a wonderful book, but I'm not sure that it, it it's a a presidential book. It's still interesting to think in terms of his legacy, though, because it was it was a wonderful book. It was an enormous bestseller, sold much more even than Lincoln's book that we just talked about. But it didn't really save his reputation as a general. You know, it, uh, one thing I tried to do was sort of track, well, how was 
Grant seen as a general in the decades after this amazing best-selling book came out. And his reputation kind of eroded. Even, even a book as good as his and as popular as his couldn't save his reputation from historians. Um, now, I, I think it's clear today that those historians had their own agenda, and that's often how history works. But the takeaway for me, just thinking in terms of presidents as writers, is that maybe the best approach isn't to try to defend every decision you made in office or on the battlefield. Maybe the best approach is to talk about the human side of, of history and, and say, you know, this is what it felt like to be in the White House, or this is what it felt like to be at Shiloh. And, and Grant does that a little bit. And, and those are the moments I think that really stand out to me from his book. And, and Grant's reputation was, as after the war, uh, was while Robert E. Lee sort of rose in people's estimation as, as the, consummate, the consummate gentleman and, and warrior, Grant was, Grant was the guy who won by a war of attrition. It was the idea that he was a butcher, that he was a drunk, that he wasn't a chivalrous and capable general. He just happened to be in charge of the bigger army. And most historians would, would dispute that account today, but it was an account that, that really reigned supreme for, for decades. And, and it was not the account in Grant's own book, of course, but all the other historians writing from that perspective sort of drowned out even a book as excellent as his. And how did it come about that he wrote the memoirs? It, it, it's honestly incredible that he finished the book, much less that he wrote a book that was this good, because he there was such an interest in, in Civil War literature. Like we think of readers today loving the Civil War. Well, that, that started pretty much the day the Civil War ended. So there was a huge marketplace for memoirs by generals, by politicians. And obviously the biggest name out there was Grant. Well, you, you, you note in the book that Sherman did his memoirs. Right. And it was a huge bestseller. Right, right. Yeah. And so these these books were, you know, these books were everywhere and, and everybody wanted them and everybody wanted Grant. But he didn't want to write the book. And, and what forced him into doing it was these the twin tragedies, basically. First, he lost all his money. He had a, a terrible bankruptcy because of some bad investments. And so his family was destitute. And so then he thought, well, maybe I'll try writing some magazine pieces. And at that point, he became very ill and found out that he had a fatal form of cancer. And so those two things together, I mean, they gave him, you know, a deadline that that was stark and terrifying. But he worked hard and it, it's really moving, honestly. You know, he, he lost so much weight that his wedding ring didn't fit. It became so difficult for him to speak that he would have to whisper and then ultimately could only communicate with his family with notes, you know, scribbled out on paper. But despite that personal pain and anguish, he poured everything he had into the book because it was his chance to provide for them. But it was also his chance to try to, you know, defend his legacy and, and tell his story. It's it's an amazing piece of American literature for a lot of reasons. But the, the way that he wrote it is certainly one of them and, and a really moving context. We jump to another soldier president, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Was, was Teddy Roosevelt the most prolific writer of all the presidents? It's close between him and Jimmy Carter. But yes, it, it's, it's a trickier question than you'd think, because if you start saying what is a book, then you really have to answer very difficult definitional issues. But I am confident saying it was Teddy Roosevelt. And I know if he was on this podcast, he would be more than confident asserting that he was the most prolific writer because he's a confident guy. Well, I want to read a quote from an early essay by Teddy Roosevelt that you provide in the book. And it's, it's from an, an early essay, unpublished, called South South Southerly. Uh, so it's sort of a natural description. And here's the paragraph. He's describing Long Island Sound and, and sailing out there. And he says, when the October weather begins to grow cool and sharp and the northeast winds blow over the steel gray waters till they are tossed into long foam-capped billows, then, for the first time, small parties of these birds appear, 
Their bold, varied coloring, coloring and harsh but not unmusical clangor at once attracting the attention of anyone who may be out sailing over the autumn seas. On the clear fall days, they can be seen a long distance off, and even before they can be seen, can be heard the loud, ha-ha-wee, ha-ha-wee. Here's your, your comment. Roosevelt engaged his reader's touch, hearing, and sight. He hinted at the voyage's possibilities, its inherent suspense, but he did this through detail. His prose rarely indulged in figurative language or ornate phrasing. Instead, it charged forward with crisp specifics. The icicles hanging from the boat's rigging, the feathers floating in the water after a successful shot. I, I think that's a great quote. It's a very good analysis that you give right there. And I think it highlights something that maybe Teddy Roosevelt isn't appreciated as much for. He was a real stylist here. And it's, it's a very pared down. It's not an ornate, highly figurative, metaphorical style. But you're right. It's got precise detail and he really can put long sentences together with just the right rhythm and cadence and and, and syntax so i read this as you know he he was a darn good writer he wasn't just uh, just just someone who really had a lot to say he could say it very well do you do you think that it, that that style was a big part of his success as as a writer I definitely think so. And he was, you know, that, that style came from a lot of reading. He was he was a prolific reader before he was a prolific writer. And especially when he would write about natural scenes and the outdoors, he just that that writing matched his sensibility. And, you know, he wrote that he was 21, 22, very young. But there's already you can see, like you said, the control and the specifics. And, and that can only help somebody when they run for political office. Uh Roosevelt gave a quote once to uh, to to somebody who was serving under him. It was actually a young Douglas MacArthur. And he said, you know, I, I say what the people already feel. And this is him talking about the White House. But, you know, that's the gift that a president who's a, who's a wonderful writer can have, that they can take the thoughts that people are already thinking or already close to agreeing with and, and can articulate them and explain them. And if you can say it in that way and, and you know, crisp specifics, lack of, of metaphorical language, that, that's kind of the opposite of a lot of political prose. It's, it's, it's ornate in a bad way. It's, it's, it's over heavy. It's, it's ponderous. But Roosevelt at his best and, and most prose at its best is just focused on details and focused on clear, simple language. And Roosevelt summoned that at times while he was president. And that's, you know, the bully pulpit is, is you know, a metaphor itself from oral culture, but it's also printed culture. And especially in that period when Roosevelt was president or Lincoln was president, you know, print was popular culture. Print was how most people interacted with politics and literature and everything else. You have another example of just that kind of clipped direct speech from Calvin Coolidge. And you, you say that this actually was part of the extraordinary rise of Coolidge to become Warren Harding's vice president. You refer to him when he was governor and he actually gave it no, no I'm sorry he's head of the he's head of the state senate and he's giving a speech about how the senate, state senate should operate you you introduce it by saying uh, his his rhetoric uh, produced a deceptively simple style short sentences elementary structures and a gift for aphorism that Franklin would have liked. A fine example comes from his first address as president of the Massachusetts State Senate, which Coolidge delivered in 1914. Here's the quote you give. Do the day's work. If it be to protect the rights of the weak, whoever objects, do it. If it be to help a powerful corporation better to serve the people, whatever the opposition, 
do that. Expect to be called a stand patter, but don't be a stand patter. Expect to be called a demagogue, but don't be a demagogue. Don't hurry to legislate. Give administration a chance to catch up with legislation. Now you say the full address was one of the shortest anyone could remember, but it marked its author as an instant star. And then it was republished in a book of his addresses that helped propel him to, to the ticket. That's absolutely right. And I think one thing that Coolidge clarifies is, you know, we think of him as silent Cal, but, but what made him a political star and what made him effective um, president was the opposite of silence. It was his words. And and there are a few examples in American history. Lincoln is another one where a, a candidate's style lines up with their ideas and lines up with their life story. And that's a powerful trio to have in your corner when you're running for office. And, and Coolidge was that. As you can see from that quote, he you know, had a very clipped and precise style, very traditional style. He advocated for a very clipped and precise and traditional form of government. You know, he he wanted he was fine to be a stand patter in, in his political philosophy. And so that fit with his lifestyle, which was, you know, he was very canny at using images of himself from his farm in, in rural Vermont to kind of show that he was an avatar for this kind of American life that was that was fading in the 1920s. And so the style, the life, the ideas, they all lined up and, and they all worked to make Coolidge an enormously popular president in his own in his own period, even if we don't think about him a lot today. And and a lot of it began with these works being being collected into a volume that was then called Have Faith in Massachusetts. And that that again was able to spread the word nationally well beyond the state. That's right. To, to, because he believed it, but also because this lined up with this sort of political image, he was not someone who aggressively campaigned for the presidency. He just said, you know, I'm a governor right now and I don't think it's appropriate for me to seek another job while I still have a current job to do. And that seems kind of quaint in, in our current political moment, but it was, you know, he believed it, but it was also smart because people responded to it. And so while he was being quiet and focusing on Massachusetts, his book with Massachusetts in the title was becoming a bestseller and being written about in newspapers. And the delegate at the convention who nominated Coolidge for the vice presidency did it because he'd read his book. He actually had three copies of the book sent to him by various Coolidge supporters, plus a friend who came over to his house and said, hey, you should really read this book. But that's an example of how important these books can be. And, you know, sometimes we forget it today, but these books have been right there at so many important political moments and political elections. And sometimes a book can make all the difference. One moment you highlight is that that was a big part of Barack Obama's remarkable ascent. There's no question. Yeah. And, and that's another example, again, of the style lining up with the, the political beliefs, lining up with the life story. And it's one thing that was really interesting for me to think about is, you know, we think of Obama from that, that convention speech in 2004 or the election campaign where he had this very polished story about my father is from Kenya, my mother's from Kansas, and it, and it all just sort of lined up in a very neat way. But it's a very complicated story, and it was in writing Dreams from My Father, and this is well before that, in the early 1990s, writing that book is where he was able to sort of figure out how to tell that story and also what that story might mean. And it was not an easy process, even if the ultimate story felt very easy and smooth. He lost his book deal. Um, he had to do major revisions several times. He really had to read a lot of literary memoir, looking for the right models and the right approach. And, you know, it was the struggle of, of a writer. And 
by going through that process. I think he sort of figured out what his story was. And in 2008, a Clinton staffer was talking to Politico and said, we're not running against a person. We're running against a story. I think that was right. And I think that's a good line. Yeah. Yeah. Figuring out how to tell that story was did so much to elevate him as a candidate. You've got many great scenes in here. One 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 that struck me was I can't imagine Harry Truman doing a book signing. (laughs) But he did. In a big hotel. That's right. He had to be talked into it. And I think that the person who did the most to convince him was actually uh, his favorite bookstore owner in Kansas City. I looked at this bookstore owner's letters and got a lot of new details from that. And, and it really captured Truman as a reader, which to me is a great way to capture somebody as a person. So Truman was not someone who wanted to be seen as selling out the president. He was somebody who had a very strict code about, you know, that he didn't want to profit off public life. But he was convinced that, you know, these are your supporters. These, this is your adopted hometown go out and do this. And he loved it. He had such a marvelous time meeting with with people who had supported him. You know, his his reputation was still pretty low at that point. But there was just something about a president who had a book that really talked about the modern presidency. You know, Franklin Roosevelt didn't get a chance to write that book because of his death. But Truman did. And all, all of a sudden, we're in the age of the atomic bomb. We're in the age of of a global war. And it, it's scary. It, it's, it's big. It, it's a lot to wrap your head around. And then here's a book from a person that says, this is what I felt like when I was there. This is what I saw in those time periods. So there were thousands of people at this book signing. And Truman was, you know, exactly what you would expect him to be. Kind, conscientious, attentive. I'm, I, I can still remember listening to recordings of this event, which were preserved at the Truman Presidential Library. And you just, so many people came up. I couldn't even listen to the whole recording because there were so many. And after every one, just the most sincere thank you from Harry Truman. And, and you could tell he meant it because he was somebody who believed in history and, and he was appreciative that, that people were ready to read his version of history. Last episode uh, Richard Nixon is is known for, among other things, his book, My Six Crises. That actually came out of a meeting with JFK. Yeah, and that's it's a, it's a story that tells you as much about JFK as it does about Nixon. It was after the, the election in 1960, which Nixon lost, and, and Kennedy needed some advice about the Cuban Missile Crisis. So he calls Nixon to the White House. It's all done very surreptitiously. You know, you can imagine the headlines that might emerge from that. But Kennedy, to his credit... Wanted to uh, wanted to get some advice and to to think about what the opposition would be thinking, and so they have a very serious meeting. And then when they're done walking through the rose garden to get Nixon back to the car, um, Nixon mentions that you know he's kind of looking around for what to do after that run. He's thinking about writing a book, and Kennedy is under a lot of stress. Perks right up and just starts talking about the literary life and saying, you know, I think every politician should write a book. I think it can really help their political reputation. And Kennedy would know because he had Profiles in Courage, which had done so much to help his political reputation. Of course, as I tell in the book, he, he he wasn't willing to do the literary work. He wanted the literary credit. And I've got a lot of new details about just how much literary credit mattered to John F. Kennedy. He probably should have just been happy with political credit, with a book that helped his political rise, like Six Crises did for Nixon. But for Kennedy, that that was just never quite enough. Right. That's that's a long episode in the book. I'm going to leave that for for the to tantalize our listeners. The book is Author in Chief, The Untold Story of Our Presidents and the Books They Wrote with Craig Fairman. Thank you, Craig. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 877- 332-2930.